awesome? Who's, who's TiVoing the game? Right? Who, who's inviting everybody over after service to go finish watching it? Who's just going to hear from the Lord during service to know who wins and you don't even have to worry about it? Yeah. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, if you got your Bible with you, we're going to, we're going to start in Matthew. But I want to start off with, uh, you know, Pastor Terry, this, this guy loves Proverbs, and I do as well. One, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite two books, Psalms and Proverbs, one of the, those are the two books that as I was growing up in like junior high school, that I would read those two books regularly, and they spoke to me more than, more than anything. Just, just the passion in, in David's heart as he was writing the Psalms. But there's a Psalm that says, uh, in Psalm 34, verse 8 through 10, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There is no lack for those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who fear the Lord will not lack any good thing. Is there anybody here who, who would like to be able to say, I don't lack a single good thing? Yeah, amen, right? And everybody else who didn't say amen, you're sleeping. So if they didn't say it, give them a jab with the elbow because there's not a single person that doesn't want continuous good things, right? Right. All right, so I, I had a friend. Uh, I grew up in northern Idaho, um, and we used to go over there and visit for Christmas all the time, right? For Christmas every year we go visit, and then I got married, and it became like every other Christmas. But I had a, a best friend who became my best friend in the first day of kindergarten. And all the way up to seventh grade, this guy was, 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 my, was my closest friend. We did everything together. And then in seventh grade, my family moved to eastern Washington or western Washington to Olympia. And we didn't talk much. Because this was like before cell phones and before pagers. I mean, we'd send like smoke signals to talk to each other. I mean, it's ancient, right? Well, I went over there one Christmas, and I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a hold of David, see what he's doing. This was like my junior year of high school. So I, I, I got on the phone, I called his house, and, and it took a few attempts, but I finally, I finally tracked him down. And he was going to come over on Christmas night and uh, pick me up, and we were going to go go goof around. And for, for those parents that, that have... Uh, kids in high school, you know that goofing around essentially means going and getting in trouble or doing something stupid, right? Most of my high school years were spent standing around a bunch of guys spitting on the ground saying, dude, what do you want to do? I don't know, man, what do you want to do? Or we'd go do something stupid, right? And the good news was we spent most of the time standing around, like two-thirds of it, so we didn't get arrested. It's good news. Well, he, he came and picked me up at like 11 o'clock at night in his dad's uh, Subaru four-wheel drive wagon. You guys remember those things? Like 1982, like they were all the same color, like this like diarrhea brownish yellow kind of color, right? Anybody own one or have in the past and won't admit to it? Awesome. Yeah. I see them like out in the woods every now and then, like around a tree just stuck there. Yeah, or somebody abandoned them years ago, taking them off-roading. Yeah, so he picked me up, and there's like three feet of snow on the road everywhere and, and ice, and, and he got this idea that we're going to go to the movie theater parking lot and just like spin donuts on the ice, right? I mean, it sounds like a great idea to me. And so, so we, we go out to the movie theater, and he's, you know, he's sliding around all over town, and there's no cars on the road because it's Christmas, and, and we, we get to the movie theater, and t- the movie theater, there's a road that goes to the theater that's like probably a couple hundred yards long, just straight stretch. About halfway down on the right is the parking lot and then the movie theater at the far end. And there's openings into the parking lot from the straight road. And there there are gaps about as wide as the sound booth. And 
they're separated. The road and the parking lot are separated by this curb that is a monster curb. It's not like a normal curb. It's like this tall, like just tall enough that, that it will destroy you. I mean, you, you'd go to step up on it and probably not get your leg high enough. It was thick. It was huge. David is doing about 60 miles an hour down this road trying to, like, you know, fishtail the car and, and you know, be a stunt driver. And he decides that he's going to try to shoot through one of these openings. And, and we're going, and I'm, I'm like, this is awesome. We're sliding everywhere. And, and I just put all this trust in David's driving ability, even though looking back, he was a junior in high school and, you know, hadn't had his license very long. But, hey, it's all-wheel drive car, right? I mean, that'll save the day. So we're, we're flying down this road, and, and, and we get to the last opening, and I'm waiting for him to, to, to take this turn. And so he whips it real hard, and, and the car turns, but, you know, on ice, the momentum and the inertia and everything still carrying you in a direction. And we're, we're sliding sideways and kind of going the same direction, and, and right about halfway to that opening, it, I, I realized we're off by a good couple of degrees, and there is no way we're making that opening. And so, man... W- Everything went in slow motion. We died. Thank you. We're back. Hopefully I talk loud anyway, and you could just hear me. So the car shot straight up in the air, and I see the sky, and, and then the car lands on the back trunk lid. Just boom! And the back window explodes out, and, and then the car slams down and then slides about 30 feet up to the 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 building and stops about three inches from the building and my my friend david he's pale and just he looks at me and i looked at him and i was like that was awesome let's do it again and the car was still running right and i'm like i don't know how this, this car survived so david puts it in reverse and pushes on the gas and we don't go anywhere and so i'm like hey try first so he puts it in first gear and pushes on the gas we don't go anywhere so well, let's get out and look. Let's see what's going on. So we got out of the car and looked around, and, and sure enough, we looked back by the curb, and the entire front drive assembly is on the other side of that sidewalk. Front tires, axles, everything was over there. I have no idea how I got home that night. I cannot remember for the life of me. But I remember after that, I tried to get a hold of David a few times. His parents denied his existence. David who? I, I think he, he was part of a Mormon family. They had like 15 kids and lived out in the boonies. I think they just buried him and made a new one. Because I, 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 to this day, have never talked to him since that. And I've never been able to get a hold of him. It's crazy. So anyway, enough about that. So Christmas. How many of you are still packing up Christmas stuff? Right? I finally just got all my Christmas stuff packed away and put away. We just packed up the season of happy and joy and Thanksgiving, man, it seemed like Christmas and Thanksgiving were just around the corner, and then, and then poof, now all of a sudden they're gone, right? And I'm still trying to figure out how to get the Christmas songs out of my head. Anybody else? Yeah. It's jarring how quickly sometimes we can go from, from, from the, the happy holiday spirit to all of a sudden the front tires got snatched out from under our joy and our peace, right? The peace of our soul, the New Year's comes around and, and something happens that's just kind of all of a sudden, you know, things change from being holiday to, oh, we're in the New Year, here we go, full speed ahead. Even during the holidays, we can think we're heading in the, in the right direction, right? 
being good people, trying to trying to do good things, being good with the man upstairs, right? You know what I mean? And then just out of nowhere, a curb jumps right out, and our joy, our peace, our happiness can be replaced with worry, right? It can be replaced with anxiety over over a diagnosis or over an accusation, right? It can, it can be replaced with anxiety or depression, feeling alone or helpless, right? Just after we got out of the season of perpetual joy, right? We just got out of the holidays and, and we're into the new year. And for some of us, that joy, we can't even remember it because it's almost like it was a year away. And when really we were just a few weeks from that, aren't we? And we're just, we're just right there. In fact, I always heard that the, that the suicide rate and depression rate was always the highest uh, during the holidays. Anybody ever hear that before? Right? On the contrary, it's not. It's actually the lowest. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because here we are, we're, 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 we get into Thanksgiving and, and we're, we're putting all of our hope and, 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 and stuff into, into the joy of the season. We're spending time with friends. We're, we're doing this whole thing. But really, the, the highest suicide rate and depression rate begins right after the new year. It's when all those people who put all their trust and hope in the joy of the season figure out that all of a sudden that's ended. And now we're off into, into real life now. Right, and then the stuff of of the Christmas season and Thanksgiving, we have to wait for a whole another year. Right, it's it just moves on. Joy and happiness that come from the temporal, no matter how good it is, will be short lived. It doesn't matter how awesome your holiday is. It doesn't matter how great your your raise is. It doesn't matter how great your new car is. It doesn't matter how great whatever thing it is that's bringing you joy for this season or the last, how great that thing is. It's temporal. It's not going to last forever. And we find ourselves most of the time like a bunch of happy crack addicts going from one joy to the next. Don't we? I mean, we're, a good example, I'll use my kids. I won't, I won't use yours because I know your, your kids don't do this. But Christmas, right? They, they get some presents. They tear the present open. It's exactly what I wanted. This will change my life. Power Rangers. And they throw it off to the side, and they grab the next thing, right? Well, this is exactly what I wanted. It's awesome. And they, you know, and next thing you know, there's a pile of stuff, and, and they get it home, and... New Year's comes around. They've been playing with their toys. You take them to the store. What's the first thing they say when you go to the store? Dad, I need that. It's going to change my life. Right? As grown-ups, we don't do anything different, do we? I got some new wheels for my car. I need some new, new wheels. And these ones are from last year. Right? Or, or my, my car, it's just not good enough. I've only had it for a little while. This, but look at this model. Or... We need, a, we need a raise because the last raise wasn't good enough. I know people who, who had looked for, for a long time for a job, finally got a job, and then three weeks into it, we're like, well, this job, man, I don't think this one was from the Lord. Right? Anybody know somebody like that where it's just, it's not quite the, the right thing. There's always something next we're looking for. We're, we're, we're going from, we get our fix with something that makes us happy, and then we move on to the next thing. I want to spend the next few weeks talking with you about what Jesus said about joy, right? Not about joy that's temporary, but about joy that's long-lasting, that's fulfilling, that doesn't leave us empty. 
And so we're going to pick up today in uh, the fourth chapter of Matthew, verse 23. So if you've got your Bible, if not, it's going to be up here on the screen. But I'll start reading this to you. It says, it says in verse 23, And Jesus went about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So let's pause there for a minute. So Jesus went to Galilee. What's that all about? So Jesus begins his ministry. And he moves from his hometown to a little town called Capernaum, which is in the northern, the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Gennesaret, right? You'll hear it named different things in Scripture. It's all the same lake. It's this 14-mile long lake that's essentially shaped like an egg. At the bottom of it is the Jordan River. It comes out the bottom. Galilee was a region that was on the left side, this is, this is my right, your left, of the lake. And it was about probably three times, almost four times bigger than the lake itself. And it was this region that was split up into two parts, northern Galilee and southern Galilee. And Jesus, most of his ministry took place in that region. He went all throughout Galilee, and he's preaching about the kingdom. And so let's keep moving. So that's Galilee. Let's keep moving here. And it says that he was healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. So this is a big deal. I'm going to tell you why this is a big deal. Back in Jesus' time, it was normal to hear about healing, to hear about the miraculous. For Jesus to be going around doing the miraculous, nobody would think that's a big deal. It was common for for somebody, for example, for you to go to work and you're, you're the guy you work with to come up and be like, hey, man, I heard so-and-so got healed, man. He was miraculously healed. Now he can see. That's awesome, man, and high-five and move on with your day, right? But for somebody to come to you and say, hey, man, there's this, there's this guy, Jesus, and he's, he just healed somebody who, who, who couldn't see or couldn't hear or had epilepsy, and now he's, now he's not doing his, his, his seizure thing, right? To, to basically say, yeah, that's cool. And move on because it was so commonplace to hear of the miraculous happening. See, nobody really saw the miraculous. They just heard of it. There was rumors about it always circulating. So it's, it's interesting that we see a crowd follow Jesus because if it weren't really happening, nobody would care. But essentially what was happening was somebody would go to another person and say, you're not going to believe this. I know, I know, you know miracles happen, but this guy Jesus... He just healed this guy. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. No, man, you've got to come and see this, right? This, this went above and beyond the normal, I heard of something happening today. Jesus was doing something profound. So, so it says here that uh, then his fame went through all of Syria, and, and they brought sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him. So that's, that just shows us that Jesus was doing something profound even for his time, right? Here he was that, that great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And this is a big deal also because nobody, none of the Jewish people went beyond the Jordan. I mean, that was like no man's land. That's where, that's where the, the, the sinners and the, the hypocrites and, and all those bad people, they're over there on the other side of the Jordan, on the other side of the, the lake, the other side of the sea. And so they kind of stayed there in, in, in their region. But there's something crazy going on because people are coming from over there now to over here. And people were probably like, hold on, hold on, why are you guys coming over here? You stay on your side, we'll stay on our side of the line. But 
Jesus was doing something so profound, it was drawing people from everywhere to be part of this because they wanted to not only maybe see what's been talked about, but also maybe they had somebody who was, who was sick, who needed healing, and they were bringing them. Seeing the multitude, chapter 5, seeing the multitude, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated with his disciples, they, they, his disciples had come to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, so we'll pause for just a minute. We, we read this, Jesus went up on a mountain. When we think about mountains around here, we got Mount Rainier, right? We think, well, maybe Jesus, you know, he strapped on his climbing gear, and he got his Ricola cough drops, and he got his bugle, and he hiked up, you know, and, uh, and up, up into the snow. Well, that's not how it was. Essentially, around the Sea of Galilee were plateaus, hundreds of feet tall, just plateau after plateau, stair-stepping plateaus around the whole region. And so essentially, that's a mountain to them, because they, they haven't seen the Alps, right? They haven't seen the Cascades. So... That's a mountain. So they go up to essentially what is this phenomenal uh, natural amphitheater, which is the top of a plateau, and it, it kind of arcs arches up so he can get up there and he can speak to thousands of people and they can hear him really well. So here's this, this perfect amphitheater that Jesus goes to, but this is what he says. In, 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 at the end of uh, verse 2, it says, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are pure, persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is sitting on this hilltop, this, this, this plateau, and he's sharing with thousands of people, a multitude of people. This is Jesus' first record, recorded sermon. This is Jesus' first recorded sermon, and he talks about blessing. I think it's kind of interesting that here Jesus has been blessing the socks off of people, hasn't he? He's going around and he's healing people. I don't know about you, but if I was blind and, and somebody came to me and said, do you want to see well, 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 yeah, done. And I could see, I, I'll tell you, I'd be blessed, wouldn't you? I mean, I'd be absolutely blessed. But Jesus knew that even blessing as, as profound as that is temporary. We know that no matter what good things happen in our lives, they will be short-lived, whether you get a new car or whether all of a sudden you get new legs. Everything, we begin to, we get desensitized to it. We get used to it. And then we still look for the next thing. Right? That's why, why, why in the Old Testament, God was constantly reminding the, the Israelites to remember what he had done. Because no matter how great a thing God did, whether it was part the Red Sea or feed them with manna or, or catch the top of a mountain on fire and speak in a way that the entire region shook, right? The, the people would forget about it. They'd get desensitized to the amazingness of God. We do the same thing, right? So Jesus, he, he's healing people, he's blessing them, but then he goes and he teaches them on, now I'm going to tell you what real blessing's about. Now I'm going to show you where, where not temporary blessing, but, but consistent blessing comes from. The word blessed is, is in, in the Greek, the word makarios, which means enlarged or prospering. It means to be content in a blessing. It means to be content in, in joy. 
Essentially, it means happy, but it doesn't mean happy that's short-lived. It means a happiness that's consistent, living water that's flowing and constantly renewing, right? That's the kind of blessing that Jesus is talking about. He knew that the blessing that they had received in life was temporary. So so we have essentially what, what we call the Beatitudes here. We've titled this thing that Jesus said, the Beatitudes, which simply means a benediction. Right? We read this word, sometimes we fly past it. Beatitude. All right. What, is it, what does that mean? It means a benediction. It means the imparting of a blessing. Right? That's not actually in the original scriptures. That's, that was put in there to divide paragraphs, right? So, or divide topics. So we have Jesus teaching the Beatitudes. And the first one he says is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So why was Jesus so cryptic in the way he taught? Because, I mean, this is very cryptic to me. Blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This, Jesus regularly taught this way because, again, thousands of people are showing up to hear what he has to say, the majority of them for entertainment. They, they didn't have plasma. They didn't have LED TVs, right? I mean, it was, what's happening, man? Jesus is healing people. Cool, man, let's go see that. And so off they'd go, and they'd bring people with them because something was really happening. But for those who weren't bringing someone to be healed or to be healed themselves, they were going to see what's all this about. And so Jesus would regularly teach cryptically. And for those who were, who were there to be entertained, they would leave. They would have been entertained. But those who were seeking something more, those who were seeking a move of God in their own life, those who recognize, I need something more than this. And Jesus just said, just said that there's blessing available that's beyond just the temporal. Now they're going to pursue Jesus further, and then he's going to share what that means, right? So we constantly see Jesus teaching this way, right? It was, it was, it was Jesus' way of doing things. He'd draw us in, and then at, for those who are willing to pursue, then he'd give them something that, that's, that's full and life-filling, life right? Something that's going to be intimate for them between them and God, something that's going to draw them to a deeper relationship with God. So my question for you today is, how's God drawing you, right? I know you didn't come to church today just to be entertained. You came because you want something deeper, right? And so that's why we're going to dive into the Word this morning and find out beyond the cryptic, what, what is Jesus saying to Jewish people to us today from his word. So the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is essentially saying, who gets heaven? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, right? That's the prize. That's what everybody wants, right? Every now and then you come across the the person who's like, dude, I don't want heaven. I'm going to go party with all my friends in hell. It's going to be awesome, right? But then a few years later, you see him in church, and they're like, yeah, well, that hell thing, that wasn't such a good idea anyway. Heaven sounds better. So, but that, that's really what we all want. We all want the destination of heaven. So up here on the screen, we, we've got a, a road map that's going to show up here in just a minute. But our culture has all sorts of different ideas about heaven, don't we? Essentially, our culture tells us that, that once you die, essentially naked babies with wings carry you off, into the clouds to your own mansion filled with virgins 
And, I mean, the ladies don't get anything good out of this, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, we just have all these cultural weird things that we've come up with that what heaven will be like because most people don't really know much about heaven. But we also know culturally that all, all maps or all roads lead there, don't we? That's what our world tells us, that all roads, all roads lead to heaven. I don't really know much about it, but I'm just going to, I'm willing to follow any road to get there. Well, here we have a real road map. This is actually a map to, what to say here, Oklahoma City, right? Is there anybody here that can look at this map and tell me how to get to Timbuktu? I know, that's actually a real place. Yeah, some of you are like, really? No way. Yeah, Timbuktu is actually a real place. And so, according to our religious culture, essentially, we could follow a map that doesn't say anything about a place that we didn't even know really existed to begin with a few minutes ago, right? But we're willing to to put our trust in something that we don't really know where it goes. It's not listed on the map. And essentially, if if we believe that good works will get us to heaven, Jesus taught us that we may be following the wrong map. We may be following the wrong map. Christianity is the only religion that says something different than all the other maps. It says good works, being a good person, isn't going to accomplish anything for us in our pursuit of God or in our attempt to get to heaven, right? Every other religion does. It says you can follow any map to essentially get to the same place. Jesus was saying, no, you can't. All the world has one map. Jesus has another, right? And so that's the map I want to talk to you about, the roadmap that I want to talk to you about for the next little while. So Jesus is saying that, that those who are poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven. See, this is a culture that was very, very spiritually arrogant. I'm going to tell you why. The Jewish people essentially knew that they were God's chosen people. This wasn't an arguable or disputable thing. They knew, we know the one and only God. We have, we have past hidden, written historical evidence of knowing God. We've got, the, we've got the, essentially the Old Testament law that was handed down directly from him on a mountain that was shaking and on fire and booming, and we were taken care of in the wilderness for 40 years. I mean, they had a history of knowing. That it was undisputable with them that they knew God undisputable, but an arrogance had begun to set in. Well, yeah, I I know God, and I'm better than all these other groups that are around us because they just have idols. We really know the real God. And so they'd become very spiritually arrogant. And then you have the Romans who essentially had taken on all the Greek gods, made them their own, and then every region they would conquer, they would take those gods too. And they had, they had amassed hundreds of gods. They had temples everywhere. The Romans were a very religious people. If one god wasn't going to take care of their spiritual needs, well, there was another one. They could go pray to this one or pray to that one or, or whatever, and all was well. right? They as well were spiritually arrogant. They thought they had it figured out. And Jesus says to these groups of people who were there, mostly Jewish people, blessed are the poor in spirit, not the wealthy. See, they were expecting, some, they would expect something like, you, you guys are wealthy in spirit and, and, and yours is the kingdom of heaven. He says essentially the opposite. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And these people were probably going, wait a second. 
There's, there's a disconnect here between their lives because they viewed themselves as very, very wealthy spiritually, but Jesus is pointing out something that they weren't seeing. And let's listen to what God says about an arrogant church. I'm going to jump over here to uh, Revelation chapter, chapter 3. And this is God addressing a spiritually arrogant church that was wealthy, that believed they pretty much had everything figured out. They love God. They love doing the religious thing. But they thought they had it figured out. But this is what God says about this. Listen to this. He says in, in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, Miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you. This is God's counsel to those who, were, who spiritually are arrogant and think they've got it figured out. He says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that your shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and him with me. And then we see this awesome picture of a daddy with a kid sitting on a throne and taking a son and sitting him up on his lap saying, hey, hey, boy, come here. Son, daughter, I love you so much. Here we are, right? We have this, this beautiful picture, but essentially this is, this is God talking to the arrogant and saying, you're missing it. And those of us who, who may be here today and think that somehow my good works, my ability to be a good person, or the fact that maybe I'm a little better than the person I work with, or this person over here, uh, I'm not as bad as maybe this inmate over here, or, or whatever. Right? Maybe we think that somehow we're better than somebody. The word would say to us today, that's the wrong map. We have to look at our own lives and, and recognize at some point that do we think we have it figured out or have we come to a place where we were able to stand before the living God and acknowledge, I don't have it figured out. I don't have it figured out. Jesus, I need you. So essentially what Jesus is saying is when we see past the religious facade of arrogance and good works and all these things to, to get us to heaven, we're at the start of something amazing, something blessed. The next one, he goes on and he says, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So there are people here who have dealt with mourning. I mean, I don't have to point that out. I mean, there, a lot of us in here have had a season in life where we have mourned a loss, where something has happened. In fact, um, we've grieved over something. There's been, there's been something that's happened. In fact, in Scripture, whenever we see mourning or, or grieving, it is always associated with death or loss. Isn't it? I mean, even in our own lives is that way. When we grieve, it's always associated with death and with loss. So essentially, let's get this straight here. I'm blessed if I recognize death or loss in my life. So this, this says, once again, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Right? The end result of blessing in this is, is comfort. Somehow we're going to find comfort. But I have to recognize death and loss in my own life. That's weird. I don't like that. Anybody here like death, like loss? I don't like it one single bit. But essentially, Jesus is saying that comfort is on the other side of this. I don't want to wade through it to get to comfort. Anybody else with me? 
right? I'm, I'm perfectly fine staying in, in my comfort zone over on this other side over here where the, the comfort sounds good, but I don't want to have to deal with the death and the loss. So essentially, Jesus is saying we've got to go through a season where we're recognizing grief and death in, in, in our own lives. So what's this talking about? We've got to remember that Jesus is talking to Jewish people. They understand this. If, if I say to you death and loss and grief and all that kind of stuff, we, kind of, we think in our, in our mind of things past that have happened that are, that are painful. To the Jews, there was something different they thought of. They went back to a time when Moses gave them the law. And essentially, he says to them in Deuteronomy, he says to them, today I am setting before you life and death. Today I'm setting before you life and death. I think we have, do we have it up here on the screen? There, there we go. I call heaven and earth as a witness against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life that you may live. Essentially, he gave them the law and he said, if you do the things I'm telling you to do, it will produce life. If you disobey me and you live in sin, contrary to my best for you, it will produce death. And then he pleads with, with the Israelite people, please choose life. I mean, don't we do that with our kids? Please choose life. Don't be stupid. Essentially, that's what God's doing with his people. Don't be stupid. I am telling you the way to success. I am telling you the way to awesome things and blessing. Don't be stupid. But we know we all make mistakes. We all, we all follow our own way. Sometimes the Israelites did the same thing, and that's why we have the Old Testament the way that it is. That's the reason the Old Testament is this thick, right? It's because the Israelite people would walk away from God. They'd go into captivity, and they'd get re- rebuked and have to, have to get back to the place of repentance. And then God would bless them, and they'd be like, whoa, why, were, why didn't we just do this to begin with? And they'd go that way for a hundred, couple hundred years and then go back into sin. And then it's a constant repeat of the same thing, Right? So we have the choice between blessing and cursing. And so God essentially set up the rules. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. It always has been and it always will be. It has been since the beginning of creation. It will be for all eternity. Wages of sin is death. That's why he pleads with the people, choose life. We can go back to the very first sin in the garden and see death took place. I don't mean that Adam and Eve died. Obviously, they didn't, right? But death entered into their bodies. Death entered into the ground. Everything that they would would have to provide food for themselves. Now there's weeds and and rocks, and they're going to have to toil against the ground. There was death in their relationship in 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 aspect to the garden. They had to leave it. There was death in their relationship with each other. There was embarrassment. There was death in their relationship with God, right? There was death that took place. Every sin after that forever and ever will result in death one way or the other in a little form or a big form. It always does. And we can justify to ourselves that, well, this isn't that big of a deal. But don't you know the choices that we make that are contrary to God's best for us will always produce death. And that will grow. And it will, it will snowball and, and choose life. So e- Ephesians chapter 2 
verse 3 through 5. Let's read this. It's going to be up here on the screen. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Right? By grace, you have been saved. So what's Jesus saying here? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who recognize death and grief in their own life. Essentially, Jesus is calling us, calling the world, calling these people at this time, calling us here now to be able to stand and look at our own lives and see where we have died, where we have failed to meet God's standard, where we have not chosen life, but we've chosen death by living contrary to his best for us and to recognize Oh, I'm dead. Wow. I didn't recognize that before. I didn't see. I, I mean, we experience death from the choices that we make contrary to God's, God's best for us. We experience them every day, but you know what we do? We, again, we get desensitized to them, and we carry the weight of the stinking, rotting thing with us everywhere we go. And our legs get weak and tired, but then we get used to it and, and, and think, well, this is this is just normal. Right? This is this is this is the way it's it's supposed to be, because this is the way it's always been, right? But we don't realize we can be free from it through Jesus and his forgiveness by taking that 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 thing from us. Right? I love in Isaiah. So so here we have this this verse that says we can get to a place of comfort when we recognize the sin in our own life has been destructive and we say, "God, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I was I was inviting death. Now what do I do with this? I I recognize I have this thing. What do I do with it? I don't have to have this anymore." And when we get to that place where we recognize that sin has not only cut off a relationship with, between us and God, but that we can be rid of this thing through Jesus, through forgiveness, there's this thing of comfort that comes up. And I love it in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. It talks about God. It's right after the Israelites have repented from sin. And God tells Isaiah essentially to prophesy to Israel about his comfort. And he essentially says this, that... You've turned from your sin. You see it. You recognize it. Now now comfort my people. And then he tells them what his comfort looks like, that he's going to forgive their sin and where death has come in and taken hold and brought destruction, he's going to turn it into life times two. He's going to multiply it over and over again. This comfort is going to be in such a way that he's going to take all that has been destroyed by our bad choices by our living contrary to his best, and when we surrender to him, when we acknowledge, God, I haven't been living for you, will you forgive me? Now he's able to take that, wipe the slate clean, lift the burden off of our shoulders, and say, I'm going to take what the enemy has meant to destroy you, and I'm going to turn it into good. And not only am I going to turn it into good, but I'm going to do it twice over. And then he goes on, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I think we fly by this one. Blessed are the meek. What the, what the heck is a meek? 
right? Isn't that like a small animal that jumps off cliffs in Argentina and swims to its death? I mean, what is, what is meek? What's that even mean, right? So we've got the definition of meek that's going to show up here in just a minute. Meek, right? A simple definition of meek. Having or showing a quiet and gentle nature, not wanting to fight or argue with others. But then we have the full definition. I like number one the best. Enduring injury with patience, without resentment. Deficient of, of spirit. That means like spunk and courage. Deficient of it. Man, that's, that's crazy. Not violent or strong. I mean, it's, it's, that's like anti-American, right? I mean, we read this and like, well, that's not me. I mean, that's, get that out of here, man. This is, this is American church. That shouldn't even be up on the wall, right? This is, this is anti-American, this whole idea of being meek. But Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I love how uh, at church sometimes we have like the, the definition of meek, right? And we also have the church definition of meek, right? I, I've, I've heard it preached a lot of times. Well, meek, well, that is the, that is the, that is ultimate strength under complete control, no, it's not. It's this. It's complete and total surrender. It's, it's devoid of, of control. It's not having any. And it's, not, it's, it's, it's being led to the slaughter is what it is. No matter how we want to flower it up or fancy it up, this is what Jesus was talking about. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the earth. Have you seen this place? Why would we want to inherit this place? See, again, this is, this is where we have a misunderstanding of heaven. See, Revelation chapter 21 tells us that we were created for this environment, but sin ruined it. But there's going to come a day he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to bring, bring healing to every wound. No more sadness, no more tears. After a thousand-year reign, Jesus is going to wipe the slate clean from this earth, and he's going to make it good again. Essentially, what he's saying is that those who inherit the earth will essentially inherit all good things made new. Okay? That's what it means. Who wants all good things made new? Anybody here? I do. I want a whole pile of it. All good things made new. That's what the meek will inherit. So let me read this to you. Meekness towards God is the disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealing with us without resisting, placing our will in his hands, trusting him for the outcome. Even when wronged or life beats down on us, we trust that God is at work. The opposite of self-assertedness is the opposite of self-preservation. We trust God over our circumstances for his best for our today's in our tomorrows. We trust him for our todays and for our tomorrows. It's laying down our rights, church, and trust that he is now leading, that he is now providing, that he is now directing, and that I'm out of control because did I have any to begin with? Right? So we've talked about three things today. Number one was, blessed are the poor in spirit. Spirit, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's coming to a place where we recognize that I thought I had all the answers, but I just realized, you know what? I don't. My culture's told me something, but 
when I look myself in the mirror and be honest, I can tell myself I don't have any stinking clue how to get to heaven on my own. But Jesus said, those who recognize that are at a good starting point. And then he said, and then he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for they will be comforted. I'm sorry, I totally messed that up. Blessed are those who grieve for they will be comforted. Right? When we get to the place where we see our sin for what it is, when we see our sin for what it is and the death and the destruction that it's brought and we have an emotional response to it, because that's what grieving is, isn't it? It's having an emotional response to death or loss. Have you ever looked yourself in the mirror, looked at the sin in your life and, and come to a place where it brings tears to your eyes that, God, I've failed. God, this has brought so much destruction. And that frees you up now for God to come in and bring comfort two times over. To come and bring comfort to you in a way you've never received it and lift that burden off of us. And then third, when we come to the place where where we can surrender our lives to God open-handed and say, you know what, God? I recognize these first two things. I'm giving my life to you. I'm done trying. I'm I'm done carrying the weight of my future because I'm not any good at it anyway. Lord, I surrender to you. Everything that I have, everything that I ever will be, I give it to you. And I trust that you will lead me through my difficulty. I trust that you will lead me through sickness, through pain, through, through plenty, through lack, through any and all. Lord, I give, it, I give it to you. I surrender to you. And when we come to that place, church, we've come to a really good place. Because let me tell you, this, this, these blessings that Jesus is talking about, these aren't blessings that are one at a time. So we have to recognize that when Jesus says this, he starts the first blessing with ending in, there's the kingdom of heaven. And then eight later, he says, again, blessed are, for there's the kingdom of heaven. He encapsulates these items and essentially draws out a roadmap from point A to point B. And he says, somewhere along this path, you will be. And those who are beginning this journey all the way to the end, I'm going to bless your stinking socks off. And you're going to be amazed because by the time you get to the end of it, you're going to realize you had something to live for that was worth dying for. And I don't know, another blessing that's better than being able to live a life where at the end of it, you're able to say, I'm willing to die for that. And that's the blessing that God has for us. And it begins right here, right? So this week we've talked about about, um, submission of heart. Next week we're going to talk about after we submitted our hearts to God, how he begins to change our hearts, right? So we're going to look at that next week. So let me pray for you. Father, we just come before you, and, and Lord, we thank you that you set up a plan for our lives to direct us and to guide us, to bless us, to heal us, to comfort us. Lord, to give us an eternity with you, to bless us with all good things made new. If you're here today and maybe this whole this whole idea of, of following Jesus seems foreign to you because maybe, maybe you've been to church a couple times and, and maybe you said a prayer and thought, well, I've got fire insurance, now I can just do what I want. But maybe this has just shed some light on something a little bit different, something a little deeper that Jesus is calling you to. If that's you today, 
or if you've just, or if you've said, you know what, I've, I've never made a commitment to Jesus to follow him. But I want to be forgiven for my sins. I want to be comforted. I want healing. I want life. If that's you today, any, anywhere in between, or if you just want to say, you know what, I just want to commit my life to Jesus again. I made some steps before, and I just, I just want to go after him new. If that's you today, will you, everybody's eyes closed, will you just slip a hand up before the Lord this morning and just acknowledge, God, I see that I don't, I don't have it figured out. I don't know how to get there. Lord, I see that the destruction of, of sin in my life has, has led to death, and Lord, my heart's broken over it. So, Father, I surrender my life to you today, and I give it to you. If that's you today, just, just stick your hand up before the Lord. Nobody's watching. It's just between you and the Father today, between you and Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we are all on a spiritual journey, Father, that you would direct us and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray.